attempted to cross a desert. I don't know whether uh, Catherine's ever attempted to cross a desert, but uh, right, okay, well, that's a start, I suppose. Um, perhaps we could think of uh, maybe trying to cross an ice sheet or um, a bit of moorland, Yorkshire moors perhaps, covered in snow. And if you're going to do something like that, of course, you've got to be prepared, you've got to set out prepared, and you've got to go carefully, because it's a dangerous place. There are places where you can fall over or slip. There are holes and crevasses you can fall into. And of course, there's no McDonald's that you can pop into if you get hungry or thirsty. So you have to walk carefully and with some determination. And so whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. That's uh, from 1 John, actually. But uh, how can we get safely through the desert as these um, Israelites that we read in the beginning of here clearly don't, didn't? Well, most of them didn't. Actually, if you come to this chapter, there's a couple of things you notice. I think the first thing you notice, at least the first thing I noticed straight away when I read it, starting to prepare for this evening, was that um, he reprises, goes back over some of the topics that he's already covered. So he talks about sexual morality, and he talks about food offered to idols, and he talks about Christian freedom, and those were, of course, the topics that he'd been dealing with in chapters uh, well, really from chapter 5 up to chapter 9. And he goes back over and, in a sense, draws the conclusion and summarises that. So that, perhaps, is the first thing we see. And yet, even in that, there's a new slant on it. And he's, um, as I said at the beginning, what he's going to do after this chapter is go on and talk about some of the problems with which the church has when it meets together. Um, when, it, when it comes together as a, as a congregation, as an assembly. And um, he's starting to work towards that because he has this idea of participation, which actually, I mean, I think links what has gone before and what is, um, what is to come. Now, participation in this chapter, at least, is largely food-related. As we can see, there's a lot of reference to food in here. And um, he says in verse 21, for instance, I'm sorry, yes, I was going to just point out, a, 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 I'm not a great one for sort of key text, you know, just having text, but I think it is worth just pointing out a couple of verses. So with regard to the looking back as what he's already talked about, he says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's verse 12. And with, as far as, well, there's lots about food here, as we'll have a look in a minute. But just to, he says here in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot take, have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. And he links these two ideas together, as we'll see, um, by this idea of thankfulness. If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Well, I could stop there, because basically that's what I want to say tonight, but I thought we'd un unpack it in a little bit more detail. So let's um, look at some of the moral issues that he deals with. And um, I say he's really going back to address the topics that he's covered in the uh, last few chapters. 
But he, um, he takes an example here, as we've seen, that example of the Exodus. Of course, he, he's talking when he's in the first part of chapter 10 about the events that happened when the Moses led the Israelites all out of um, Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea as they were um, baptized through the sea. They were baptized in the cloud, perhaps refers to the cloud that John Newton referred to, the cloud and the fire that led the people onward. They all ate the same spiritual food and spiritual drink. If you remember, they got um, manna and quail that they were provided in the desert. There no McDonald's, so they had to eat something. Um, and they needed water, and water came forth from a rock when, um, at one point when Moses struck the rock, and on another, another time they found a spring uh, that the Lord led them to. And so they all did that, all the Israelites had shared in those blessings, and yet, um, for most of them, it didn't go well. And in fact, as Paul rather graphically, even gorgeously puts it, the Israelites' bodies were scattered over the desert. Most of them didn't make it, frankly. Um, they fell, as we say, by the wayside. It's almost like one of those pictures we got so used to them now, haven't we? They don't shock us anymore when you see newsreel from the war, war zones and there's a truck driving along a road and you can just see dead bodies on either side. I think if I'd seen that, perhaps I did see that when I was uh, young and television was only just invented and it shocked us. Now, I suppose it still shocks us, but we've almost got used to it. But it's a horrible thing, really. And this is the image that Paul has here. These Israelites, their bodies were scattered across the desert. And he tells us, why is he, why is he bothering to tell us all these things? Well, he says, those things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the fulfillment of the ages come. So we, we're supposed to learn from something from them. And um, I don't want to go through all the examples that he gives in detail, but I thought I might just look at one of them. Um, and that's the reference to apparently 23,000 in, um, uh, in verse 8, perhaps the least well-known of these events. Um, now, as far as we can work out, this refers, in fact, to Numbers 25.9. Um, Though, actually, in Numbers 25.9, it says 24,000. Paul seems to have rounded it down for some reason, but I think the general opinion is this is the event that he's referring to. And what is that event? Well, it's, um, you may be familiar with the story of the Moabite king, Balak, who saw the Israelites coming in from the desert, invading his territory. And he hired a prophet, the prophet Balaam, to curse the people of God, to curse the Israelites so that he would then be able to defeat them, because he saw that with the blessing of the Lord, he wasn't going to be able to beat them. Um, but, well, Balaam wanted the money, wanted the fee, so he turned up. Uh, but trouble is, he wasn't able to do it. Whenever he tried, the Lord spoke to him and he just wasn't able to do it. And he says, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? That's Numbers 23.8. But Balaam still wanted his fee, so he came up with an alternative scheme. 
And that was a scheme that very nearly worked. It doesn't actually say in Numbers 25 that this was Balaam's idea, but if you look at Numbers 31 verse 16, it does say that it was Balaam who came up with this scheme originally. And what was the scheme? Well, he suggested that the Moabite women should seduce the Israelites and get them to indulge in pagan sacrifices to, to the Baal, Baal Peor. For some reason, the Israelites always seem to have found Moabite women particularly attractive. And several times through the uh, Old Testament, that was the case. Most times it didn't end well, although there was an exception, of course, in the case of Ruth, who was a Moabitist. But, but generally speaking, it didn't end well. And this, this scheme of Balaam's, in fact, very nearly succeeded. He very nearly did uh, turn the Lord's face entirely away from the Israelites. The only drastic action saved the people. And there's a, story, a graphic story again of a, a priest who ran his spear through the, uh, a sinning Israelite and Moabite woman. Um, only drastic action saved the people. And even then, he said it was a tremendous cost of life. 23 or 24,000 people died from the plague. So Balaam and Balak very nearly got away with it. And certainly, they did a great deal of damage to the people of God. And why? Because the people were not careful, did not watch their step. They were, uh, were well, they um, simply did what the Lord had told them not to do. They weren't careful enough. And the point, really, of course, Paul is making here in, in chapter 10 is that even though these people experienced God's leading firsthand, and they did, he says, our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized, if you like, into Moses, in the sense that they went through the, the waters of the Red Sea. Even though that was the case, they still failed to inherit the blessings that had been promised. And if that could happen to them with all the blessings they'd had, then it's a warning to the Corinthian church and equally a warning to us today. So he says, if you think that you are standing firm, as perhaps the Israelites did, make sure that you don't trip up. There's always a crevasse there for you to fall into. But still... At the same time, there's no need to despair. Some of them did make it, or at least the next generation made it. In the end, the determination of God to save people cannot be thwarted. But still, they still had to be careful. They still needed this warning. And, um, but as Paul tells us, we don't need to despair. This, I think, touches on what Phil was talking about this morning. Quoted that verse where it says, we are perplexed, but we're not in, in despair. And uh, Paul says here that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Man temptations that the Israelites faced pretty much the same 
as, we, as the Corinthians faced, pretty much the same as we face today. They may, may not directly have problems with idolatry, but still pretty much the same sort of thing. Putting things in the place of God, sexual temptations, greed, just general grumbling. So the temptations are pretty much the same. In the end, they all come down to not trusting God to do what he's promised. And, um, but he says, God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He says elsewhere, doesn't it? Resist the devil and he will free from, from you. The problem comes when we don't resist. He says, if you do stand up, then God is able to save you. So when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So he's saying, don't, we're not, we may be perplexed, but we don't despair. And uh, we do, as Phil was pointing out this morning, it does move on from Romans 7 to Romans 8, um, where he says that those who live by the Spirit can put to death the deeds of the, of the flesh. So it's not a counsel of despair, but it is a warning for us. And again, we've been through it in some detail, so previous years, so I won't, the previous week, so I won't reiterate them all in detail um, but it is a warning to us and yet also even here Paul does again have this caveat the one that we looked at really last week when he says we still want to be careful not to fall into legalism we need as we saw last week to assert both the freedom that we have in Christ but also the need to use that freedom for the good of others well I, I just wonder whether to put my slide up from last week but, but I didn't I listed the implications of this in some detail last week Paul gave we saw that Paul used a series of rather nice paradoxes to make the point but here he just puts it quite plainly and briefly and succinctly where he says everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. When we want to in, do something, we need to think, is it, not just are we free to do it, but is it going to help us? Now, that may not always be a, you know, a good and easy question to answer. Is sitting down and watching, the tele watching some trashy television going to help you or not? Well, it might or it might not. If it enables you to relax and unwind, then it might be just doing that. If you can thank God for it, as he says later, then perhaps, perhaps it is. But you need at least to think about that. Is it constructive? Is it beneficial? And most importantly of all, of course, not just for me, but for the good of others, is it beneficial and constructive to my fellow believers? So he says, yes, again, we do need to maintain freedom, but we mustn't fall into the sin of legalism. So, I mean, I, I thought I wouldn't go into too much, say too much about that, because it is ground that we've covered in the previous weeks. I thought for the rest of the time, I don't think we're actually going to take very long tonight. We might have a bit of time for bit of discussion. Um, there's, I'd look at this issue of participation. 
And what are we going to participate in is the, is the issue that Paul um, raises here. Are we going to participate in the blessings of God or are we going to participate in the, world, in the worship of idols? And um, most of what Paul says on this issue here is, is actually to do with food. Um, it gets a bit more general as he moves on through the, through the letter, but here, I mean, the Corinthians had raised the issue of food, food offered to idols. So he says, yeah, this is a good, good way of looking at this idea of participation. <coughs> so just let note how much there is about food in this chapter. First of all, in verses 4 and 5, he talks about them... Uh, they, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Sorry, it's three and four, isn't it? Not four and five. Yeah, three and four, sorry. Written it down wrong. It's three and four. So he talks about, particularly notes what the Israelites ate and drank. And then in 16 to 18, he comes back to this issue that he dealt with last time, uh, dealt with it previously about idol feasts, food offered to idols, but he also introduces a theme that he's going to pick up later, which is the theme of the uh, Lord's Supper. He says, which of these are you going to participate in? Are you going to eat the food that's sacrificed to idols in verse 18, or are you going to drink the cup of the Lord in verse 21, or, or are you going to uh, eat at the Lord's table? And he's going to say a lot more about if you're familiar at all with the later chapters of Corinthians. You'll know he says a great deal about that in, in 1 Corinthians. And then again, he comes back to the issue of food yet again towards the end in verses 25 to 30. So he's talking now about th things being permissible but not beneficial. And he talks about saying food sold in the meat market. And he says, okay, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner, should, should you go? Notice he actually again says, do you want to go? That's a good question you might not have thought of. <laughs> but that's what he says, do you want to go? But if you do, then don't get too hung up on it. Um, it of course, that would have been more a problem, particularly for Orthodox Jews, than it, it is perhaps for us. But even among, you know, there have been cults and groups of Christians even today that say we should not eat with unbelievers and Paul says no it's fine to go and eat with unbelievers um, and if they stick some food in front of you don't you know it's not very polite to sort of poke at it and see, see what it was um, he says as long as they don't actually say you know I've offered this you'll want to eat this because I've offered it to Athene or whatever then it's not going to do any harm but of course if it, they do tell you that then you may need to think again um, but there's a lot about food here. And, um, and it goes right through really to verse, uh, well, I said 30, actually 31, because then he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So a lot about food and drink in this chapter. And um, he obviously thinks that's a good way to introduce this idea of participation. And what's also rather neat, um, in verse 23 says everything is permissible. He's obviously sort of kind of quoting what the Corinthians have been saying. 
he turns the, the Gnostic argument on its head in a sense and see what they were saying was that food is a, nothing to do with spiritual issues so it doesn't really matter you can do what you like with food and, um, and he said yeah that, that, that's kind of true but what are you going to participate in in a sense that is true that food, is, food isn't you know, it's for the body and not for the, the spirit, but you're applying that argument in entirely the wrong way. And of course he makes the point by talking about the food that was, they ate in the desert, and he calls it spiritual food and spiritual drink. Now, it's perhaps not quite clear, does he, is he saying that, that the manna and the water itself was spiritual, or is he saying they're only pictures of the spiritual sustenance that, that, um, that God gave them? And the argument for saying he means that, he says they, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Um, my suggestion is that in fact he's, he's doing both really. He's saying, yeah, they ate this food, this manna, quail, the water, and it was... For them it was spiritual sustenance because it was the provision that came from Christ uh, that they, so that they could cross the desert. And maybe there is other sorts of spiritual food as well involved, but I think, I would suggest that's what he's saying there, that this food was spiritual because it was the provision that came from Christ for them to cross the desert. And, um, and he, he makes... Uh, the pattern of the rock that was struck by Moses and the water came out he says well really that provision didn't come from that rock it came from Christ himself so the point is that they ate spiritual food if any food qualifies as spiritual then this did and what about the other blessings the law of Moses the leading cloud the sign of baptism in the escape across the Red Sea when Pharaoh's, they got through but Pharaoh's chariots were, were drowned. These in a sense are spiritual food too because they were things that were provided by God to keep them alive. Yet they all ate and drank it in the physical sense but it didn't keep them alive. <laughs> In fact, as Paul says, their bodies were scattered across the desert. They ate it in the physical sense, but they didn't participate in it spiritually. And that's why he introduces here that idea of the Lord's Supper. We're not just supposed to eat it, we're supposed to participate in it. And as was the case for the Israelite sacrifices. So he says that in verses 16 to 29. It wasn't just a case of, you know, fry up a, a, a sheep. Some of it gets put on the altar and we eat the rest of it, although that was basically what they did. Uh, but when they, when they ate it, when it, the Levi ate it, and when it was sacrificed to the Lord, they were supposed to, it was supposed to mean something to them. They were supposed to take part in it. The, um, in a sense it wasn't um, eating the lamb that saved them in the day of the Passover it was the fact that they took the blood and put it on the door frame 
and said, this death applies to me. And, and if, when the Israelites had sacrifices, they were supposed to participate in it. It was supposed to mean something to them. Um, one of the prophets says, doesn't it, do I delight in the blood of lambs? You know, I'm not interested in killing sheep. What I'm interested in is that you give me what, I, what you should. And so just as the Israelites ate the manna and the quails and drank the, the water, and yet it wasn't really spiritual food for them because in the end it didn't keep them alive. So you can say the same thing about Paul says, well, Paul says the same thing about the Lord's Supper. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, in the next chapter, in verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You think it is, but you're not really eating the Lord's Supper at all. You're not participating in it. And actually, to some extent, it's even true that the same applies in reverse. And so he says, if you go to dinner with an unbeliever, well, it is actually, or you buy some feed, food, meat at the local market, it is actually possible that this meat has been offered as an idol sacrifice or someone who is unclean in some other way. But it might be ritually unclean, which, as I say, would have been a problem for a strict Jew, certainly. Remember, Peter had this problem at Cornelius' house, and the Lord had to send him a vision before he'd go and eat with Cornelius. But if you don't know that it's been sacrificed, then merely eating physical food is not going to do you any harm at all. He says anything without sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's not going to do you any harm. And do you remember Jesus himself said something very similar in Mark 7, 18 to 19? Jesus said, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods, unclean, all foods clean, is the, the comment that Mark adds on the end. Um, but... Yeah, merely eating food is not really going to do you any harm, even if it's food that is ritually unclean. But if you participate in the sacrifice, then that's a very different matter. Because, he says, the sacrifice of, uh, offered to an idol, sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with the demons. So he makes a distinction there between eating the food and participating in the sacrifice. And he says, do the same thing if you're out at this dinner party and your host or somebody else says, this is the food that was sacrificed to Diana of the Ephesians or whatever the local god or goddess is he says then well in that case you better not eat it why is that because even if it has no significance for you it clearly does have significance for the person who, who mentioned it um, 
In his view, you will be an idolater, even if not in your own view. Even the appearance of evil should be avoided as it will cause the other person to make an unjust judgment. Notice he says that in verses 29 and 30. He says, why should um, the other man's conscience, I mean not yours, for why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? Um, why, why should my, when I exercise my freedom, should it actually cause a problem of conscience for somebody else if I'm trying to avoid upset, you know, trying to avoid putting people, obstacles in people's way, I have to worry not only about my own conscience, but the other man's conscience, the person who pointed this out. And so, um, but actually, of course, he says that you would actually, if you do that, you would actually be participating in the idolatry yourself um, because you were not seeking the good of others. So, in fact, if you did that, you would actually be participating yourself in that sacrifice offered to the demons. So this issue of participating and not being participating, not being the same as eating, I think is an important one. What makes the spiritual food effective for us? What made it ineffective for the um, Israelites? How can we eat the Lord's Supper and yet not eat it? How can it be all right to eat food that may be unclean from the meat market, but not to eat it if we know where it's come from, as it were? How do we know if we're participating or merely eating? Now, this, I think, is a quite complex question and one that actually in many ways he's going to expand and work on in the coming chapters. But actually in this case he gives a rather um, simple answer in this chapter. He actually says what is your attitude while you're doing it? Are you grumbling? That's what happened to the Israelites wasn't it in verse 10? You know all the other sins sins that uh, he'd mentioned before that you might have thought that grumbling was the least of them but no actually grumbling is the worst of them (laughs) because he's saying you know you are not God has provided you with this spiritual food and you're not interested you don't want it you think it's you know you'd rather have a Big Mac it's um you don't you want spiritual junk food and he's saying no that's grumbling at what God sets before you, not eating your greens, if you like, is um, exactly how you fail to participate in the meal. Well, we, could, we can relate to that, can't we? You know, if our child sits there and refuses to eat, you know, don't like cabbage, don't like that, can't eat that. No, I don't want that. I want chocolate, you know. Um, I once uh, once had a meal with Miriam and and Harry. Miriam's my daughter. Harry's my grandson. And she actually gave him some chocolate and he wouldn't eat it. 
She said, so stood up and said, child, eat your chocolate. <laughs> um, but yeah, he wouldn't even participate in that. But anyway, that's a bit of a red herring. Um, yeah, the, you know, if the child is not participating in the family meal, you know, the same is rejecting what the family has put, what has been put in front of him. And we could do that also, couldn't we? We could go out with uh, somebody else and not participate in that meal. We could eat it, but really be sitting there thinking, what am I doing here? Why am I, do you know, why am I here? And, and complain and grumble. On the other hand, in verse 16, he says, isn't the cup of what? The cup of wine, the cup of the blood of Jesus, the cup of the new covenant. No, he doesn't say that. He says, isn't the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. It's the giving thanks that is the um, that enables us to participate in it here. We give thanks to the Lord for his provision and then we are participating in the meal. We give thanks to our host or the child says thank you to his parents for the meal set before him and then he's participating in it and we're participating in it and that's what uh, Paul says here is we need to be doing it's the cup of thanksgiving and we need to give thanks and that's the participation in the blood of Christ and of course that also helps us with the idol food offered to idol question who are we giving thanks for or to rather sorry who are we giving thanks to if the host puts the meal before us and we say thank you, you know, that's really nice, that's great then we're participating in it but if the host says look, this, this, I brought you this specially, it's straight from the temple of Mithras then they're giving, th then we, we're not going to participate in that because then we are giving thanks to the wrong person we're giving thanks to the demon rather than the Lord who are we giving thanks to? Now it may seem strange that thankfulness, a simple answer like that, seems a very simple answer to a, a very complex question. And, and perhaps in a sense it is. And I think, as I say, this idea of participation in the Lord's Supper and so on certainly gets expanded and worked on in the um, following chapters. But still, that's the answer he gives here. Perhaps it's the basic, simplest answer we can give. To participate in it, you have to be thankful. And perhaps we can just expand that a little bit and say that thankfulness here is really faith in action, isn't it? When the um, Israelites were grumbling, they were saying, well, you know, I don't really, it's not just not up to scratch, this stuff that, you know, that, that God has provided for us. It ain't going to work. It just won't, won't cut it. It's just no good. That's what they were saying really, wasn't it? They didn't have faith that the provision that they needed to get through the, um, that, that God had provided to get through the desert was actually up to the task. And with the result, of course, that for them it wasn't. They died in, in the transit. So it's really, thankfulness is really putting your faith here into action, isn't it? When you give thanks for the cup, you're saying, yeah, I, I thank you that the blood of the covenant was shed for me, not just 
abstractly the questions, not just for, you know, for, for any, any old people, but we give thanks that the blood was shed for me. And uh, in that sense, we participate in it. We, it's faith, faith put into action and saying, yes, we are going to thank God for what he's given us, the provision that we need to make it through.